1 John, we've been going through 1 John for many weeks. We still have many weeks to go. It is a short book, but we're going slowly through the short book. So the passage of scripture we are in today is actually a little bit of an overlap. We are looking at the last verse of chapter 2, which is verse 29, 1 John 2, 29, and we're going to go into chapter 3 a little bit, verse, verses 1 to 3. 1 John 2, 29 to 1 John 3, 1 through 3. We've titled the series, For His Glory, For Our Benefit. For His Glory and For Our Benefit. And the goal of every one of these lessons is to glorify our great God and His great name and also to benefit His family, His people. And I hope today, once again, we will find both of those things. The title of our lesson today is Characteristics of a Child of God. Characteristics of a Child of God. We'll get to the text here in a little bit. But we like to do an icebreaker before we begin to get those jitters out of the way. And so, how long have you lived in the North Country? 16 years. 16 years. Who's new to the North Country? Anyone new to the North Country? I'll raise my hand. Newish to the North Country? Yeah, there's a few of us. Well, I've had to learn a few vocabulary words <laughs> since I've been in the North Country. And before I was in the North Country, guess what they called me? And I didn't even know it. A Flatlander. I lived most of my life a Flatlander and had no idea. And I got up here and someone referred to me as a Flatlander and that was offensive and I didn't know why. Um, now my question before I begin this is how long does it take before I become a true North Countryman? It doesn't. Once a Flatlander, always a Flatlander. No matter how many mountains I scale. If I, wow. Challenge accepted. He said, if you see a moose, I accept the challenge. Well, how do, you do, how, you, how do you know you belong to the North Country is our question today. I'm going to give you 10 vocabulary words, okay? And I'm going to contrast those vocabulary words with what a Flatlander might think about this word and then what a North Countryman or woman might think of this word, and you'll, you'll notice the difference, okay? Let's start with this word boots. <laughs> boots. To a Flatlander, boots are simply the shoes you wear to shovel your driveway with, correct? That's what Flatlanders call boots. North countrymen call boots any and all footwear. <laughs> everything's, foot, everything's boots. Are there boot slippers? Do they have such a thing? Boot slippers? I want it trademarked. That's my idea. Uh, here's another vocabulary word, hiking. Hiking's big up here. Now, to a flatlander, hiking is an occasional outdoor activity. Right? That's right, JP. But up here in the North Country, hiking is our health club and our home office. We just spend so much time outdoors, don't we? Even, the, even people who are not avid hikers do more hiking than even the avid hikers do in the flatlands. Uh, this word notch. To flatlanders, a notch is something you add to your belt when you gain a few pounds. <laughs> to the North Country men, it is, it is the landmarks you use for directions to literally anywhere. Someone's describing how to get to a place. It's like, well, you go through the Pinkham Notch. Oh, you want to make sure you go through the Crawford Notch. And it's always the notch, right? And I had to relearn the word notch. How about this word snowshoes? Joel, I should have you up here for this one. Snowshoes to Flatlanders are last year's sneakers that you don't mind wearing in the snow. That's what I called snowshoes. Up here in the North Country, snowshoes are how you get bread and milk in February. That's right. Sometimes it's not just words, but names. The Lahoots and Presbys. To a Flatlander, never heard of them, because I hadn't. To the North Countrymen, 
the Godfathers. <laughs> Respect the Godfathers. How about this, Massachusetts? <laughs> Don't get it. I'm, I'm a Flatlander. I'm okay with Massachusetts. I'm just, see, I'm just writing what I see, okay? Don't get offended at me. I'm a Flatlander. To the Flatlanders, Massachusetts is the home of the Red Sox, Patriots, and Celtics. To the North Countrymen, it is the home of every bad driver in the country. <laughs> Once again, I calls it like I sees it. Number seven, someone already brought this up, Moose. Moose. The legend of the moose. Now, to a Flatlander, moose is that foamy stuff you put in your 90s haircut to help you impress the chicks. I did a little too much, as you can tell. Overkill. Uh, to the North Countrymen, moose are quite different. They're the number two killer of drivers after Massachusetts drivers. And the most common animal people see when Pastor Todd is not around. At least so I've heard. The legend grows. Here's another one, Chudders. Oh, Chudders. Chudders. To a Flatlander, Chudders is the Hershey Park of the North. <laughs> to a North Countryman, Chudders is how you spot a tourist. Yeah. The little bag, right? <laughs> First time. We still like Chudders, though, right? Anyone still like Chudders? You've been here a long time. You still got to go into Chudders, right? Drop $45 on a little candy. <laughs> How about this tagline, live free or die? Live free or die. To a Flatlander, it's a tagline of entitled people who don't have to pay taxes. <laughs> to a North Country man, it is a tagline of awesome people who don't have to pay taxes. That's right. And last but not least, the old man of the mountain. Wow, we had like a little uh, depressing sigh there. <laughs> I mean to touch a nerve. To the Flatlanders, the old man of the mountain is a confusing tourist attraction. It's confusing because there's still signs up. Old man of the mountain. And if most of you know, the old man of the mountain no longer exists, but the signs still do. It's confusing. So it's a confusing tourist attraction. To North Countrymen, the old man of the mountain is the kindest man and greatest mentor any of us ever knew. Right? Rest in peace, old man of the mountain. How do you know you belong to the North Country? Well, where we're going today is how do you know you belong to God? Join us in 1 John chapter 2. Our verses today will be the end of chapter 2, verse 29, and the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. What have I encouraged you to do along our way? Read 1 John once a week. Now, who has begun this process of reading 1 John every single week? All right, okay. 10% of us, 15% of us. Who's read 1 John every week? Any, oh, nice job. Okay, good job. I'm on that list. I have to be. Have to be. I can encourage you to read 1 John. Again, you will start to notice some, some great things by reading 1 John over and over and over. You'll see a lot of the themes, and you'll see a lot of the buildup to the passage we're looking at each Sunday. So I encourage you to do that. Let's read our passage together. 1 John 2, starting at 1 John 2, 29. John says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. 
And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's our text today. If you remember last week, we talked about the power of abiding in Christ, the power of abiding in Christ, and I've encouraged you along the way, as well as reading 1 John, is to keep 1 John in context, because we're only able to look at a small portion every single week. So it's important for us to keep it in context and remember where John has just taken us. And last week, he spoke about the importance of abiding or abiding in Christ. And let's read that passage very quickly, just to see the buildup to what John is saying today. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has been taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. What John's going to tell us today is not so different than what we learned last week. Abide in Jesus. He's going to remind us today of some characteristics of what it means to be a child of God. But his application for us is going to be very similar to last week's. Abide in the one who made that all possible. Now, yes, last week was Father's Day. I'm not confused. Um, I am on some things, but not on that. Uh, Sometimes you're hoping the scriptures fall perfectly in line with some of these special days, right? Like this week's lesson today would have been so fitting for last week's lesson or last week's special day on Father's Day. But maybe sometimes God just wants to remind us that uh, he doesn't need anything uh, muddying up the water, right? Sometimes we just need to reflect on our Heavenly Father, and that's a good thing. So today we are. We're going to reflect on our Heavenly Father. We have a great Heavenly Father, do we not? An amazing Heavenly Father, and we're going to be reminded of that today. Our outline is very simple today. We have three points. Number one is the marks of being born of God. What does it look like if you are born of God? Number two, God's mighty love for his children, because it is a mighty love. And number three, John is going to encourage us to prepare to meet our Lord Jesus. That's a three-point outline. Let's start with this. The marks of being born of God, because John says it right in the text. Verse 29. He says, if you know, and really that idea is being certain, if you are certain that he, God, is righteous... Let's pause there and ask that question. Are you certain that God is righteous? Are you certain about it? Would you stake your life upon the fact that God is right in everything he does? He's just. He's good. John says, if you've learned that, if you are certain about that, he says, you may also be certain of this. Same concept. That everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The scripture makes it very clear that God is just, God is righteous, God is good in everything he does. And we sing about this. And that is firm in our hearts and our minds, I believe, if you've been in Christianity long enough. This God is righteous in everything that he does. Now, we are not. We try. We strive for God's righteousness in our lives, but we fail many, many times. God never fails. Not once does he think selfishly. Not once does he act out of anger. In a sinful way. God is righteous and just in everything he does. He is good in every season. Whether the season is hard or easy. Whether it is mountaintop or a valley. God is good all the time. Amen? I hope you believe that because it's true. In fact, the scripture teaches us. In Psalm 11:7, the psalmist says this. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. 
God loves righteousness. Everything he is, is righteous. So therefore, the things that God loves the most are things that are based on righteous deeds. Coming to Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, it says, The rock, his work is perfect. Anyone ever get 100% on something? I had a couple of those growing up. Not too many, though. His work is perfect. 99.9? Is that perfect? No. God's work is always 100% perfect. For all his ways are justice. But don't you wish that was true about the nation that we live in, the world that we live in, that all their ways were justice? A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And I'm probably not teaching you anything when we read this. Our God is righteous and perfect and just in everything that he does. He is always upright. He never takes a moment off. He's never lazy. He's never complacent. He's never selfish. Our God does what is right at all times without fail. So John gives us this little if-then statement. That if we understand this, if we are certain that our God is righteous, and I believe we are certain that our God is righteous, he says, well then... Here's something that should be clear as well. The validation that we belong to God is that we practice righteousness. The same thing that God is, is the same thing that his people love to practice. It has to be. God would not be okay with his people practicing anything less than what he is, what is true and right and just. If I asked you, uh, I'd love to give you very easy quizzes sometime, aren't I nice? If I asked you, what do you expect an apple tree to produce, what would you say? Apple. Good job. <laughs> easy quizzes. We love easy quizzes. What if I asked you about an orange tree? Orange. Oranges. What about grapevine? Grapes. What about a fig tree? Fig. You would expect that because that's what the tree is, correct? If you saw an apple tree holding figs, the conclusion would be very simple. It's not an apple tree. It's a fig tree because look what's growing on it. Well, John is basically giving us that same equation, basically by telling us whatever's hanging on your spiritual tree is what you are. Now, it does not mean, and we've talked about this already when we looked at the early parts of 1 John, it doesn't mean we never falter, we never fail, and there's never uh, an ugly, stinky fruit hanging on a tree. Sometimes there is. But it should also be true, and more commonly be true, that there are righteous deeds hanging upon our trees throughout our life. That had better be the case if we say we are born of God. But this concept of being righteous is not, and we need to be very clear doctrinally, it's not because we make ourselves righteous. Is it true? We do not muster up righteousness. It is not something we earn. It is not something we can do on our own merits. We know this because we just celebrated communion, where we remember the sacrifice of one who made us righteous. In Romans chapter 5, Paul speaking, he said, For just as through the disobedience of one man, who is he talking about? Adam. Through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of one man, who is he talking about? Jesus. Will many be made righteous? The term we use in Christian circles is born again or regenerated. If you're a Christian, if you believed in Jesus Christ, you have this regeneration. You have this born again spirit-born soul that God gave you through Jesus Christ. And therefore, Jesus alone has made us righteous. 
or able to be righteous, able to think righteous, able to act righteously, able to function like someone who is born of God because we are born of God. And if you don't see righteous fruit hanging off your tree, that's something you need to question. Because once Jesus makes someone righteous, their every thought is how to live righteously. At least it should be. And it's a process, I know that. I don't know if you can see that picture, uh, but I was greeted with this on Father's Day last Sunday as I woke up. My children had, in secret, ninja style, uh, made a sort of collaborative card together, and it's, they put it up on the wall for me to see when I woke up. And if you ever zoom in, if you're able to see the picture up close, there's a bunch of things that I enjoy on that, on that little card. And it was so touching to see that my all, kids, all my kids work together, because that doesn't happen all the time, that my kids work together on one project. But when they did, it's a very special thing, especially when it was for me. And you can see a bunch of those things that I love on that, on that card, but... The focus of this picture should not be on the card, should it? Those who I really love are right here. I have eight children. Eight children. Let that sink in. I have a lot of kids. But every single one of them I cherish. And every single one of them is unique. But here's what's common about all my children. They all have some part of me and Janine in them. Some of them look like us. Some of them act like us. Some of us... Some of them have our sense of humor. Some of them have our character traits. But every single one of them has a little bit of Janine and a little bit of me in them. And that's what's cool about having kids is that you're able to see a little bit of yourself reproduced. Well, when God helps us be born again and and gives us a new soul and regenerates our heart and soul, he makes us like him, able to think and reason like him, able to act like him, able to produce others who act like him. It's the concept of making disciples. We follow Christ, and then we help others follow Christ, and more children are born who love God and think like God. Now, that picture's really grainy. I don't know why that is, but it's not on my screen. Um, that is a picture of my dad. I want to just want to show him how he really looks. Uh, my dad passed away a little over a year ago, and my dad was one of the most um, biggest blessings of my life. Uh, my dad was a legend in his circles. My dad was one of the kindest, sweetest, gentlest, um, faithfulest, most, most faithful, most loyal people I've ever met. And one of the biggest blessings for my soul is when someone says to me, you, you remind me of your dad. You do, you remind me of your dad. And that's one of the most encouraging things I can ever hear. Because my dad was a truly godly man, a faithful man. And so when someone says that to me, it's an honor that I remind them of, of Mel Walker. Kevin DeYoung, a pastor in Michigan, he's in Lansing, Michigan, we were only an hour south of his church, he once said this, he said, it's, it's not convincing to say that you are a child of God if you have none of the characteristics of your father. Right? If there's nothing about God within you, then it's not convincing that you are a true child of God. Now, that might be a little hard to hear, going, wow, that's a high bar for me to be able to look and act like God, the Father, Yes, and it's a process. It's a process of maturation and growing up into righteousness and how that we should live and think and act properly. But for all of us, whether you're new in Christianity or been in Christianity a long time, there are traits of God in every single one of us, even from the moment of this new birth. And if there's not, then we need to question the entire experience, whether we actually were born again or not, because we will all start to look and think like our Father. So the question for all of us today is, who is your father? And I don't mean this in the way that it sounds, Star Wars. Um, but who is your father? Who is your spiritual father? 
Did you know this concept came up in Scripture as well one time? Jesus in John chapter 8 was talking to these religious zealots called the Pharisees, had many encounters with these men, and they had this sort of dialogue about who is their father, and they claimed that Abraham was their father, therefore they don't need Jesus to do anything for them, they're children of Abraham, they're good on their own, they're, they're fine already, and Jesus said this to them in response in John 39, he answered them, or they said to him, Abraham is our father, and Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. If you were like Abraham, you would act and think like Abraham. And what did Abraham do? He served God. He loved God. He loved the things of God. He looked like God. He says, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God because I am the only begotten son of God. This is not what Abraham did. Therefore, you need to question the fact that you actually are who you think you are. You are doing the works your father did. Well, if Abraham is not their father and God is not their father, who is Jesus referring to? He continues in verse 42. He said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. And that's true about me as, as, as a walker. If you love me, if you, if you enjoy Pastor Todd and respect me, you will also respect and love my family. The two are a package deal. God, Jesus said, if, you, if God was your father, then you would love him who was sent from the father. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord. God the Father sent me to this earth. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. In other words, you don't really want truth. You want to believe what you believe, and no matter what someone says to counter that, you don't want to hear it. And then Jesus said the hardest thing, which is possibly to hear of anyone, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Do you notice the same kind of equation? Whoever you act like, whatever you're producing upon your tree is what you are. Again, not at all times. We don't always bear, bear righteous fruit upon our trees. But if there's no righteous fruit, we need to question who our father really is. So Jesus says you're acting more like your true father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. They were rejecting Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. They were acting more like the devil than Abraham. And so Jesus told them point blank, you are acting like your father, it's just not the father you think that it is. And here we see this concept of regeneration and new birth in, in the scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone's been born of Christ, if anyone has trusted in Christ, guess what happens to that person? They become a new creation. The new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. That's why he uses the term born again. It's not a physical version of that. It's a spiritual regeneration. And once that spiritual generation takes place, we cannot help but change. And I remember when that happened in my life. I couldn't help but change because I had been born of God, born of the Spirit. And my actions and my thought patterns all began to change. Now, yes, that needed help. I needed the scripture. I needed the church. I needed people to guide me. But I had new desires. And I didn't know where they came from except to say they came from God himself. And every single person who trusts in Christ receives that Holy Spirit and that regeneration. 
And in the scriptures, we see this concept of repentance over and over and over. In fact, you cannot not see it if you're looking carefully. This concept of repentance is that we're all starting to go one direction by birth. Because guess who our father is by birth? It's the devil, unfortunately. We are all broken and cursed. We all rebelled against God, and therefore we are all following the father, the devil, who is the father of lies. But when we meet Jesus Christ, he says, stop. Do not go any further in that direction. In fact, I need you to turn around. I need you to turn around and start following me. Because I'm going to take you on a brand new path for the rest of your life. And this old path that you once lived for, I need you to take it out to the curb. It's not to be a part of your life anymore. It doesn't mean, again, I don't want to go too far and give you a license to sin. But we will slip and fall along the way to this process of becoming like Jesus. But Jesus tells us, it's very clear about this, that once we trust in Jesus Christ, we have to turn around. We have to take that old lifestyle that we once lived for and loved and cherished and remove it. And he's going to help us with that process. But we can no longer continue in the same path we once did because that is the path of the devil. And the devil is all about sin and all about lies and all about what is wicked. And Jesus says, before you go another step, I need you to turn around. I need you to set your eyes upon Jesus. I need you to listen to my counsel and I need you to go the way of righteousness from now on. And every single person who gets saved is told that by the Holy Spirit. You cannot continue the way that you have been. Now, I'm here with forgiveness. I'm here with regeneration. I'm here with new birth. I'm here with cleansing for your entire soul. But you will be following a new path from now on. Every single one of us must turn around and start following Jesus on the path to righteousness. J.C. Ryle, some of you have heard of him, a very famous pastor in the 1800s. He said this, he said, to say that we are sorry for our sins is mere hypocrisy unless we show that we are really sorry for them by giving them up. Doing so is the very life of repentance. If you're really sorry for your sins, you won't continue in those sins anymore. You will give them up. You will divorce that old lifestyle. You will say, I now belong to Jesus Christ. My life My pattern, my theme is all about things that please God. And at the top of that list is righteousness. Righteousness and love, which John is going to continue to embark upon for the remainder of our passage here. He says, you know that he is righteous. We have learned that by now. God is righteous. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, notice what he doesn't say. Everyone who is perfectly righteous has been born of him. He uses this word practice, and he's going to continue to bring up this word in John, 1 John chapter 3. He's going to use this word over and over because it's kind of like a pattern. If you remember practicing sports growing up, right, you had to practice to get better at something or an instrument or something you played. You had to get better. It had to become a pattern of your life so that you could actually produce the right things. Well, Jesus has called us to this narrow road, and this narrow road is one about righteous living, And it's hard and it's difficult and it's full of thorns and thistles and enemies coming after us. But it's the road of righteousness. And this road of righteousness is where Jesus is going to take us for the remainder of our life. And he's going to tell us and remind us that we must practice those things. We must practice the things that God loves in order to know that we belong to God. Now, it's not in order to be loved by God. God loves us while we were sinners, correct? But in order to know that we are of God, we must be practicing righteousness. And he wants us to know that if we're not practicing righteousness, it doesn't mean everything is over and we're doom and gloom from now on. He wants us to know 
Today is the day we need to turn around. If we're still going on the wide path of sin, we need to turn around and start following righteousness. And that's the beauty of having kids. The beauty of having kids is you get to see elements of yourself in your children. And God loves this. He loves when he can see himself within his children. And we weren't that way by nature. But now that he can look, it up, look at those of us who are following Jesus Christ, he can see himself within us. And that is a beautiful thing for a father and a mother to experience, is to see some of yourself in your children. My dad had that same experience. Often he would tell me that he was proud of me. And I know why he was proud of me, because I started to act like him. I started to act like my father. And he goes, Todd, I'm proud of you. You look just like me. But my dad also looked like his father. And that was the train we were on. The marks of being born again. Number two, let's talk about God's mighty love for his children. Because another thing you will notice on all Christians' life is the mighty love of God. Right? You will notice the mighty love of God upon Christians. John says in verse 1, See or behold what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Have we gotten a little too used to this concept of being God's children? Because that should still amaze us. If you know who you are and how you started this life, it should still amaze you that you are a child of God. And John reminds us of that in, in, in verse 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father gave to you that you and I should be called children of God. That's an astounding thing to understand. I can think back to the, remind, to the beginning of my life and, and be stunned and shocked that I'm on this path of righteousness because that's not where I was headed. That's not what I loved. That's not what I was doing with my time. And now God calls me his son and he loves me. Now, if you know anything about scripture, from the beginning... From the beginning of this world being created, God was the God of the Israelites, correct? He had a chosen nation, and his chosen nation was Israel and the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. Those were God's people, and there was another group of people called Gentiles who were not God's people. It was just that simple. It didn't mean God hated the Gentiles. It just means he gave his special fatherly love to the Jews, and he let the Gentiles be who they were originally, which is wayward from God. But the Jews got all God's special treatment and love and, and fatherly protection. And so you see this in the Old Testament. You see these two distinct, very distinct and separate groups of people. The Jews who God loves and takes care of and gives his fatherly affection to. And then the Gentiles who kind of get the short end of the stick. Now, most of us in this room, I believe, are Gentile people. And that's a very odd thing to know when you hear that being said going, well, wait a minute. I thought God loved me. Well, he does. But from the beginning, God was the God of the Jews. So what happened? Well, it's this term adoption. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In love he predestined us. Now notice that. It wasn't God along the way going, Oh man, my heart is breaking for these Gentiles. I should consider them for the first time. I, I should look at them and consider their thought, consider where they are, consider how broken they are, and let me throw a little love their way. No, it says he predestined us for adoption. To himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So is it true that God is the God of the Jews? Absolutely, 100%. But is it also true that God had a plan from the very beginning to adopt Gentiles into his family? Absolutely, 100%. So that Gentiles and Jews could be made into one family together. And if any of you have experienced adoption, you know how special that is. It's, 
brings some difficulties, I'm sure, as well. But it's a special thing for us to be able to give our love to someone who is not naturally our own. The Gentiles are not naturally God's own children. But guess what God does? He gives the same love to the Gentiles, those who believe in Jesus, as he does to his Jewish family. In fact, we find this in Romans 3. Paul says, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Now, if you're a non-Jewish person, you, you, that better be one of your favorite verses in the entire word of God. Because that means your, God the Father is your God and your Father also, as long as you believe in Jesus Christ. He's not just the God of the Jews. He is also the God of the Gentiles through this concept of adoption. God brought us into his family, gave us all the tender love that he gives his own children. In fact, this is how it began for Gentiles. In Romans chapter 5, notice this. And remember what John says. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Notice the kind of love that we receive through Jesus Christ. In Romans 5, Paul says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But what kind of love has God given us? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't clean ourselves up. We didn't go to seminary and learn a whole bunch of things about how to be righteous and then produce that righteous fruit. And God goes, finally, you're cleaned up. I can accept you. He says, no, while you were filthy, while you were a sinner, I gave you my love, my full love through Jesus Christ. Because that's the kind of God that we have. A God who cleans up sinners. A God who cares for those who are hurting and broken. A God who sees a broken world and sends his son to this world to fix it. To redeem us so that we can have a restored relationship with God, even though we don't deserve it. Here's a sample, a portion of what good parents give their children. Protection. Provision. Patience, forgiveness, discipline, training and teaching, sacrifice and joy. Well, that was for the Jews. God gave all of that to the Jews. If you read the entire Old Testament, you will see God doing that exact thing for his Jewish nation over and over and over. And many times them taking it for granted and not appreciating it and even turning away from that kind of love. But God gave it to him, them regardless because that's what his covenant looks like. He does it in spite of sometimes our failings. But guess what he did through adoption? He decided to give that exact same fatherly love. Honestly, if you look at Scripture, because of how the Jews acted in disbelief, in rebellion against God, God brought this entire group of people into his family called the Gentiles. And really the concept of being a Gentile is non-Jew. It's that simple. He took non-Jews who were not his people and he adopted them into his family and he gave them all the same love he gave his own children. He gave them protection, provision, patience, forgiveness, discipline, training, teaching, sacrifice, and joy. Doesn't he? Are you, are, are you a first-hand witness of that love in your life? I am. I see it every day, every week of my life. God gives his love to me. I am a Gentile. That means I am not a natural child of God. But make no mistake about it, I am a child of God. And I'm loved just like the Jews are loved in every possible scenario, in every possible way, because that's the kind of God that we have. God pours his love into my life and he says, you are my son and you are my daughter. 
Have you been adopted into God's family? We should not act weird about adoption. Adoption is one of the most special things there possibly could be because it's so godlike. It's so Christ-like to take someone who's not naturally your own, bring them in, and treat them like, you're their, like they're your own. And God does that to us every single moment of our lives. He treats us as if we were always his children, as if we had never been wayward, if we had never been the father, excuse me, the children of the devil. He loves us with an eternal love. So he says, see, behold, what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Let that shock you. Let that stun you. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. In Hosea chapter 2, God explains this love to, by using an illustration. He told Hosea, the prophet, to marry a known prostitute called Gomer. Gomer was a known harlot, and Hosea was going to act like God in this relationship, and Gomer was going to act like God's wayward people. But through that illustration, Hosea ends up giving his special love to one Gomer who does not deserve his faithful love. And that's a picture and illustration of God's love to his people. To those who were not his people, he says, you are my people. To those who had no God, we say, you are my God. And why is that possible? what Jesus did on the cross for our sins. That adoption is possible because of what Jesus did to restore that relationship, restore our soul, redeem our soul, and cleanse our soul to bring us back into the family of God. And it's all because of God's great grace and God's loving kindness that Gentiles can be a part of his family. So Paul says again in Romans 8, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Do you call God your father? Then you're adopted. You couldn't do that unless God had adopted you into his family. If you call God your father and you see his fatherly love, God's love is all over your life. And Paul says the spirit, the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There's another authentication. If you have this Holy Spirit of God in your life convicting you, challenging you, teaching you, guiding you, loving you, picking you up, forgiving you, setting you on the right course, that means you are loved by God and adopted children of God. But not just children, because Paul continues. He uses another word. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of what? You know what an heir is. It's something that you re receive when someone else passes on, something that's an inheritance. He says, if you're a child of God, you're also an heir of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Meaning whatever belongs to Jesus belongs to you and I. Now let that thought rattle around your brain for just a moment. Whatever belongs to Jesus belongs to you if you are a child of God. We are not just children. We are co-heirs with Christ. So that one day when the kingdom of heaven, the doors are swung open for Jesus Christ, and the Lord, the King of glory, walks in. Guess who will walk in with him? His children. Every single one of us, even though we were stained by sin and corrupted from our birth. He says, provided you suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Don't you love the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us? Isn't that, isn't that pool deep? Isn't that ocean deep? 
The depth of God's love for us cannot be explored, cannot be exhausted. We don't know its beginning. We don't know its end. And thankfully, we don't because we'll never explore the depth of God's love for us. But make no mistake about it. It is there and it is eternal for those who are loved by God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Christians are confusing people to the world. We are. We are. The world does not understand why we live the way that we live. This was not hard to find. I just typed in Christians are weird. And trillions of websites came up. Not that many. But we're weird to the world. They don't understand why we live the way we do. Why would we not walk on the narrow road? Why would we say no to sin? Why would we worship a God we cannot see? It's very bizarre to the world. They think it's a blind faith. They think we're, we're lunatics by following something that seems ambiguous to them. Are Christians weird? Yeah, we are, if you compare us to the world. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing, because the world is still broken, and they need to see the light of God. In fact, they will go so far as to say that Christians are brainwashed. You ever heard this? Brainwashed, to which I would say to them, you don't go far enough. We are brainwashed. We're also soul-washed, heart-washed, feet-washed, body-washed, mind-washed. In fact, Paul, or Peter, excuse me, when Jesus knelt down with a towel and started washing his disciples' feet, Peter says, not my feet, Jesus. You're not going to touch my dirty feet with those glorified hands. And Jesus said to Peter, listen, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And then what did Peter say in response? Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Wash me all over, Lord. Cleanse me from head to toe. We are brainwashed because we're heart-washed, soul-washed, body-washed. Thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are cleansed and forgiven and righteous in the eyes of our God. And we are going to look weird to this world because Jesus looked weird to this world. Jesus acted like he was from somewhere else because he was. We act like we're from somewhere else because we are. Our last point of today is preparing to meet our Lord Jesus. John brings this up as well. We are in this preparation process right now before Jesus returns to this earth. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. We've just focused on how beautiful that is. And what we will be has not yet appeared. There's something still to come. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We are children of God now, but there's something amazing still to come. One day we're going to enter the kingdom of God. We're going to be with our God. We're going to lock eyes with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The best is yet to come by far. It's amazing to know that we're children of God and we get all his earthly, fatherly love, but this is only the tip of the iceberg for what awaits his children. In Scripture, you see this concept of three big doctrinal words that I'm going to just take a moment to explain. Um, these three words, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And you could spend your whole lives talking about these words because they're so deep and vast and complex. But basically, the concept of justification is exactly what we talked about. God makes us righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, and he declares us to be righteous before his eyes. We're justified. Not because of anything we have done, but because of the blood of Christ. He cleanses us, he heals us, he makes us right before him and declares us that we are now righteous beings in his sight. But then he draws us unto sanctification, which is 
a big fancy word for being. I need to know what I'm talking about here. Being like Jesus. Now, can you imagine that? I talked about how, how amazing it is when people compliment me and say, I look like my father, Mel Walker. I act like my father, Mel Walker. But imagine someone saying to you, has anyone ever said to you, you remind me of Jesus. You remind me of Jesus. You're acting like Jesus did. That's an amazing thing to know, but that's where God is bringing us to this, uh, this concept of sanctification. And one day we're going to receive glorification where we see Jesus and with Jesus for the rest of eternity. And we're in the middle of this process right now. If you have been saved, you're justified in the eyes of God, and now you're climbing up the steep hill called sanctification. It's a narrow road. It's a difficult road. It's a difficult mountain, but we will all get there by God's grace. He says, beloved, we are children now, God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be just like him because we shall see him as he is. That is an amazing blessing. That for one day, all my sin falls away. All my selfish deeds and selfish thoughts fall away. And I am perfectly righteous as he is righteous. Now let's use the concept of uh, climbing a mountain because we'll understand that concept. We're surrounded by mountains here in Littleton. Uh, now, but not mountains quite like this one. This is Mount Everest. This is base camp for Mount Everest. Uh, does anyone desire to climb Mount Everest one day? Come on, North Country. All right. We're good with the 4,000 ones. Uh, to, Mount Everest is 29,000 feet in the air, and, but it's a lot of people's bucket list is to climb Mount Everest. Now, when you climb Mount Everest, you have to do something before you get to Mount Everest. You have to go to base camp, right? And base camp is for all those who desire to go up Mount Everest. And so you arrive at base camp, you get everything in order, and then one day you begin the ascension. Well, in this parallel that we're talking about today, this is the concept of justification. God declares us righteous. He makes us holy and spotless in his eyes, and then he says, you're now able to climb, and now you must climb. And then we all arrive at the base camp of righteousness, or sanctification. And then he says to every single one of us, climb, ascend. Until Jesus comes back, I want you to climb and ascend, and I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you my grace and my Holy Spirit and my church, and I'm going to fight the devil for you many times, but I'm going to need you to ascend that really steep hill until Jesus comes back. And this is the term we call sanctification. And make no mistake about it, climbing Mount Everest is hard. I can only imagine. I've never even climbed the 4,000 feet. But climbing Mount Everest is not an easy task. It's a very difficult, painful, costly task. But by climbing such a steep mountain, you're able to experience and see things that once you never could have thought possible. And I will say that as a person who's climbing this spiritual mountain, I've been able to see things, experience things a person like me should never have been able to experience before. Because I was a sinner. A very clear sinner. And now God is making me into the image of his son, and I'm able to start acting like Jesus. And that's not even the end. Because one day, we will get to the mountaintop. where this glorification takes place. And we will be there with Jesus on the same top of the mountain where Jesus ascended and climbed on his own merits by his own strength. We will be at the same summit with our Lord Jesus and we will be just like him. Heaven is not just a Disneyland of all our desires and dreams. Heaven is the place where God's will is done and we become exactly like our Father. We think like him. We want the same things. We're in perfect fellowship together. There's no more darkness, no more sin, no more pain, no more separation forevermore. 
all because of what Jesus has done. And that's what he's calling us to now. Climb, ascend to the hill of glorification, and I will help you every step of the way. So John says, listen, if you're a child of God, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, here's your simple process. Everyone who thus hopes in him, because we do hope in him, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in our Father, purifies himself as he is pure. Now remember, he's not stating this is how we become saved or righteous in God's eyes. We are already that based on the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. What he's basically telling us to do is get ready. Get ready to meet your Lord Jesus. And it's scripture, it actually calls Jesus the bridegroom. Did you know that? We are the bride, the church, and he is the bridegroom. And every bride knows what it's like to prepare themselves to meet the bridegroom. In fact, it's a very profound parallel we find right in the scripture. In Revelation 19, he says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. It's a prophecy of what's to come. And the bride, his bride, has made herself ready. By purifying ourselves, by walking up this mountain of sanctification and preparing ourselves to one day lock eyes with our Lord Jesus and for him to recognize us based on the fruit in our lives, based on the love that we showed, based on the holiness that we live for, based on the righteous deeds that we did, not in perfection, but in similar patterns that Jesus did. And John says we purify ourselves as he is pure. We'll explore that in greater depths one day. I know that's a very big concept to glaze over. But here are the simple characteristics of God, of being a child of God that John has brought up. Number one, we begin acting like our Father. Number two, the love of God is all over our lives. And number three, we use this life to prepare ourselves to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask yourself that question today. Is that your life? Do you see evidence of the Father in your life? Is the love of God all over your life? And are you using this time right now, between now and the second coming of Christ, to meet your Lord Jesus and to look the way you should look for when that experience takes place? Paul and Peter and others have said this in Scripture a few times. He doesn't want us to assume. He doesn't want us to round up. He wants us to know, and even John's going to bring up this concept in 1 John 5. He wants us to know that we have eternal life to know that we are children of God, to know if we are saved. So he says, examine yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are truly in the faith. If today you're not, it can be rectified simply by putting your eyes on Jesus. But if the last day Jesus doesn't recognize you, that is going to be a terrifying, horrible day. When Jesus looks at you and says, I don't know who you are. You don't look like me. You have no evidence of the Father or the Father's love in your life. I don't know who you are. And the kingdom of heaven is shut in your face. So Paul says, examine yourselves now. Make sure you're in the faith. Because if you're not, you can take care of that today with God. And I implore you to take care of that today with God if you need to. 26-year-old Todd had to do that. I had been in the Christian faith ever since I was five years old. Assuming, rounding up, imagining that everything was fine. And then one day I had to realize everything was not fine. I was walking on the wide path of sin and destruction. And God said, turn around and start following Jesus. I said in every lesson we're going to find something that glorifies God and also benefits our soul. We find it right here in this text. God is glorified by redeeming and adopting the most undeserving creatures, which we are. We are. We're sinners by nature. We're Gentiles. We're not God's people. So one day when we enter the kingdom of heaven, who is glorified by that? God is. We don't belong there. 
We don't, we don't deserve to be there, but we are there. And why are we there? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. To God be the glory. But it also benefits us. Because when we are children of God, we receive all of God's fatherly love. All of it. Not half, not 75%. Every ounce of God's fatherly love. We also become co-heirs with Jesus. An amazing blessing that can only be... Um, we can only think about just for a moment now because it's so deep and so vast. And number three, maybe even the most amazing of all, we get to become like Jesus. We get to actually be made like Jesus. We get to think like Jesus and look like Jesus for the rest of eternity. And before we close today, James has told us this, and John's going to remind us again to be doers of the word. I know how easy it is to sit in these chairs and to listen to a sermon and, and nod and get convicted and to feel good about it and then to walk away and deceive ourselves and do nothing about it. John doesn't want that. James doesn't want that. God doesn't want that. He doesn't want us walking away and forgetting what it means to be a child of God. So let's quickly look at three applications. We'll breeze over these very quickly. Number one, based on the fact that our Heavenly Father has loved us when we were the worst we could be, because that is a doctrinal truth. He loved us while we were sinners, based on the fact that he gives us our fatherly love. Number one, let us shout his love to the world. The same world that doesn't understand Christians, the same world that thinks we're lunatics and brainwashed and weird people, let us take that love, that light, and shine it in the darkness. Because you know what happens when you do that? People see it. And the light turns on in their soul if God allows them to, if God softens their heart. And so we take that love and we proclaim it on the mountains to the world who desperately needs to see there's something beyond this world. There's someone who loves you in a way that no one else could love you. There's hope that you possibly have never even imagined waiting for you if you will simply set your eyes upon Jesus. Let us shout that love to the world. Number two, let us strive to be exactly what God called us to be. I don't want us to set that bar here or here, somewhere that's manageable, somewhere that we can get over on our own strength. God says, be perfect as I am perfect. Peter says, be holy as God is holy. We are striving for true Christ-likeness. And if we want that, we will get that because God will help us. Therefore, let us strive to be exactly what God called us to be in every area. Number three, let us fall madly in love with our Lord Jesus. Again, I remember that day when that happened because I changed I went from being told that I should read my Bible more and told that I should go to church more and told that I should be a little bit more righteous in my actions and not wanting any of them to one day the light, the light switch being turned on and I said in my soul to God, I want him and I want him pleased. And wherever that takes me, I'm willing to go as long as he is happy. Have you said that to Jesus? Have you meant it? Have you fallen madly in love with your Lord Jesus? As a reminder, he says, see what love, what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we may be called children of God, and so we are. If you're a child of God today, you are the most blessed person imaginable because the one who created the world is the one who takes care of you, sustains you, protects you, provides for you, disciplines you, teaches you, gives you patience and joy, and will do so forevermore, all because that's how valuable Jesus is in God's eyes 
Do you have the characteristics of a child of God? And if you don't, will you begin that process today by setting your eyes on Jesus and giving God your soul? Let's bow in prayer. Father, there's a lot that to be said about this passage and this theme that we haven't said. It's a very deep topic. But Father, I pray as we've looked over these things today that you would be encouraged. That we would be encouraged, Father, to realize the great depths of love that you've shown us to realize the amount of grace and forgiveness that we've received, to realize that we're co-heirs with Jesus and one day the best is yet to come. If we will simply climb this hill, keep climbing this hill, Father, everything's at the summit. Remind us that Jesus first climbed this hill and that he's helping us every step of the way. Help us, Father. Help us in this endeavor. Help Crossroads Church in this endeavor to be more like Jesus. We love you, we love him, and it's because you first loved us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.